welcome back to Cooper Duper, a Twin Peaks podcast for regular people. This is Jess. I'm Mikey. And we are back to talk about episode one slash two, kind of. Mikey, do you want to go over one more time the weird naming convention of Twin Peaks? <laughs> um, yeah, so there's always confusion, and it wasn't really all that confusion. It wasn't really all that confusion. wasn't really Star all that Star. confusing until years later when it started coming out on disc and more specifically on streaming when it was up on Netflix and things like that. Um, Cause it was always released as, and I think I talked about this briefly last time, but it's, it was released as the pilot, which was a standalone thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this, once the series got picked up, it started with episode one then. Mm-hmm. So it's pilot episode one, two, three, four, five. But if you're watching it on, on say Netflix, Netflix, they're not going to, it's episode episode one. one, two, three. So episode one becomes the pilot. Episode two becomes, or episode one becomes episode two, and so on. Um, what is what do they call this one? Oof. Do you have a title for this? Um, I do. Give me one second. Because I know that'll help clarify for you guys, for us, and making sure we're talking about the the right episodes. Um, the episodes were all traces to nowhere. Traces to nowhere. That sounds right. Um. The episode titles, you'll see if you're you're watching this on Netflix or Hulu, Showtime, something like that, you'll see those titles. Um, And those titles were added well after the fact. Also, if you're watching anything that has the Log Lady intros, um, those were added after the fact. So after the show aired for the first time, um, it later, several years down the road, I want to say Bravo did a re-release of it. Um, and was Bravo around then in the 90s? This was several years later. Okay. And when Bravo released them, it was... This would have been probably late 90s, early 2000s, something like that. Mm-hmm. But they, they, they gave them English titles. The English titles came from... I want to say Japanese distribution Hmm. where they made up titles in Japanese and then Bravo translated the Japanese titles to English and that's where those titles came from that are on um, Netflix or Hulu or things like that or what you see on the internet. Interesting. So I'm on um, just looking on IMDb. mm -hmm. So one is pilot, two traces to nowhere, a couple other things and then it gets to 1.6. So the ep- the one armed man is episode five. One point six is just episode one point six, one point seven, and from there on forward on IMDb anyway. They don't. I might be able to look it up elsewhere. Yeah, we can find them. I'll, we'll make an effort to do that. But um, yeah, they're essentially like not part of the real creation. It's not Mark Frost. It's not David Lynch. Those those names are relatively relatively arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so let's jump in. So this is a 45-minute episode instead of uh, mm-hmm. the, the feature length that we saw last time. Mm-hmm. Um, so to catch us up, we have um, a couple events that happen. Mainly is the murder of Laura Palmer and the discovery of her body. Um, there's a lot of, it's like Mikey will say a lot, it's very soap opery. So everybody is either fucking somebody else or trying to. Or fucking over somebody else. Oh, that's good. Um, and so we have the entrance of Special Agent Dale Cooper, 
So Laura Palmer's dad, Ronette Pulaski, was also attacked in the same incident. She's still alive. Um, Dale Cooper thinks that this in is... In a coma. In also a coma. very soap, soap opera um, Yeah, exactly. Uh, Dale Cooper, it, Special Agent Dale Cooper, comes in thinking that it's a similar case to one he saw a year prior. Um, Teresa Banks. Of Teresa Banks. Um and yeah, we've got a couple other secondary characters that we'll sort of check in with, but that's sort of in terms of like. So a problem I've had. So I this is probably my third or probably fourth time watching this all the way through, which sounds like a lot, but every time I watch an episode, I, think, I and you always say all the way through, and I don't, I don't think you've been all the way through it three times. Some some episodes, this might be your fourth. But yeah. I, the dredges of season two, I guarantee you didn't watch. So maybe I, I've done it all the way to three times. All the way through two times. Yikes. Something like that. Yeah. But either way. Um, so we're going to start at the beginning of the episode. So we start in the Great Northern, our favorite home away from home. Yeah, it's the first time you see the interior um, of the actual rooms, like where Cooper's staying. You mm-hmm. see like the business rooms and stuff in the pilot. Also, from here on out, everything is sound stages in California. Oh yeah. Um, everything the pilot was in all the pilot on was all filmed. I mean, primarily all on location. I mean, there was tidbits here and there that weren't, but um, and it really makes a difference. Um, I obviously love this show, but. It's way too damn sunny all the time <laughs> for for uh, for being the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> um, but like like even like interior scenes, you look out the window and it's just like blazing sun <laughs> through the window, and it's ridiculous. Um, so, but yeah, so you start a, in the Great Northern. They kind of pan all the Pacific Northwestern. You know, uh, there's a rifle on the wall. Sure. And there's you know. Birds, just knickknacks. Yeah, very woodsy. Yeah, very very woodsy. And then you pan across and see, you hear him talking to Diane, Uh and then they pan across, and then you see his feet Uh at the ceiling, Uh and you slowly go down to his face, and he's got like old timey like uh, gravity boots, um, but he's got like old timey uh, stirrups on for his socks, yes, and he's wearing, uh, (laughs) you know. Red boxer shorts with an A-frame tank top uh, shirt mm-hmm. tucked into them. You know, uh, like which you tuck is, in it's your just, shirt to your underwear. It's a really nice moment. Um, also, to point out, to start things off, too, this was this episode was written in, written by Mark Frost and David Lynch, mm-hmm. and directed by Dwayne Dunham, who Dwayne was, the Rock Dunham. He <laughs> he was the editor on the pilot, so yes. he. Worked seamlessly with, you know, Lynch and Frost, and um, it was a great, you know, secondary to not be David Lynch directed, but to have someone with the same sensibilities and whatnot. So Cooper takes breakfast at the Great Northern Hotel, and and we hear his iconic, which... (laughs) So he gets the cup of coffee poured for him, Mm -hmm. and he makes the waitress wait for him to drink it. He's got to test it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, this is, excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. 
I've had I can't tell you how many cups of coffee in my life, and this this is one of the best. What is it in Cooper's nature to be like? Actually, fuck this shit. Brew me a new pot. This is garbage water. I hate this bean juice. No, but I think it is within his nature to be like. I would love it if I could get another cup, something that is hotter, uh, blacker, or you know what I mean. Like yeah. I could see something like that. Like politely, he would do it politely. But he's an FBI agent. He's not afraid of like conflict. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like not like us, the most conflict. Yeah, exactly. Um, it would. It could be like a salad. Would be like, oh my god, this is great. Thank you so much. Yeah, I. I yeah, I will take anything. But but um, yeah, so he gives his iconic. Excuse me, but this is a damn fine cup of coffee. Mm-hmm. And he, excuse me, because he swears. Yes. Um, and anyway, it's a it's a delight. Um, and then uh, Audrey Horn, Sherilyn Fenn, introduces herself and begins flirting with him. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the Cooper. Well, let's not dig in too much to it. I mean, we're we can to... start it now. It's it starts now. So, um, I read a note. I'm gonna um. Uh, somebody, let me see if I can find what I'm, the introduction of a sexual rapport between the characters of Audrey Horn and Dale Cooper was a suggestion of Dunham's, Dunham is the, the director, director, yeah, who felt it would benefit episode. both characters. Now I am, um, just to tie it back to something else, I'm in the middle of the second season of Community, which is like maybe the quadrillionth time I've watched it, mm-hmm. and it has another similar thing between Jeff Winger and and Annie Edison, who are two of the characters, that he is in his late 30s and she's 18, 19. Same with, like, Cooper is, I think he's actually in his 20s, but ostensibly probably in his early 30s. I think he's supposed to be about 30, yeah. And she's 18. And, like, I get, and, and this is a thing I've seen a lot of, like, oh, well, they had this planned and then they saw the chemistry between these two characters and they had to write for that, which I, I do get. And, like, you cannot predict chemistry mm-hmm. like that and you just don't know but man I they because they just sort of try to shuffle away like oh my god let's, hopefully everybody forgets that she's in high school and he is a right. special agent with the FBI and has no business flirting with her over right. damn fine coffee I don't know it's just one of those things that you see a lot and I think the creators are just like Ugh, fingers crossed they like this character enough that yeah and they forgive an old creeper dude. I th- to- but I also think it's it's pushed by her more than him. And I think he's playing along with it because in the same way he reacts to everybody so far. Like playful curiosity? Is it's, it is? it's you you set yourself up. I'm going to play along so that I know who you are. Mm. So when I need you for something, I know what to do. Mm. I think like he plays Bobby in his interview in the pilot beautifully mm. of uh, the, you know, the way he knows, he knows right off the bat, he didn't kill Laura Palmer, but is playing him. Sorry, I just dropped my phone twice and my hand is on the table. Oh my God. Um, but like, but yeah, and the same thing later in the interview with James or in the interview with Donna. Um, I think he's, he's, he's feeling out all of the characters who are in play. And I don't think he's being like predatory at all in this scene. I don't get that vibe at all. No, 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 no. I don't either. 
Not necessarily, but there's, I mean, she, and she is definitely plays a character of, which is she's, kind of a male gazy character. Right. Like, and she's flirting with him it. for sure. And yes, he doesn't shut it down right, right. away. Right. But he also doesn't like. He gives no indication that she's interested, that he's interested exactly. in her. Exactly. Um, if you can hear anything in the background, it's our dog is trying to murder a bone. So we'll check in on that as the case uh, unfolds. Um, he, he, Cooper, makes his way to the sheriff's department where he and Sheriff Truman discuss the day's plans. A wonderful scene. I don't know about discuss. Scene. <laughs> I, okay, first of all, um, what's his name? Michael. Ankian. Ankian deserves an Emmy for how he just <laughs> hoovers that. He puts like, an entire... Bear claw. I think it's a bear claw, like giant ass thing into his mouth. And they do the and whole like, thing like on camera, so you're watching him like push the pieces into it. It's great. It's great. And then and then but like also everybody he passes in his segue back there um uh, is eating a donut. Like this is donut time. Oh yeah. Like Andy's <laughs> got a donut in his mouth, Hawk's got a donut in his mouth, like everybody has got a donut in their mouth. During that scene. And then also, this is the moment where Coop recaps very quickly Sorry, everything from the pilot. I just want to be clear. Mikey's extremely close to him, so he calls him Coop. Uh, um, <laughs> this is this is where yes. he basically... So if you didn't get to see the pilot, but everyone talked about it, this is where he recaps everything that happened to the pilot. Oh, very sure. quickly, well, Precisely. Harry Truman stares at him with a mouthful of donut. <laughs> and it's fantastic. And also, like... The little things they do where, like, they've got construction guys in there taking out the glass. Like, the opening in the pilot, the sheriff's station had big glass dividers. Oh. So when he walks in, they're taking out the, the glasses. or They're doing remodels so that – because also, I don't know if we mentioned this or not. I don't remember. But you can fairly famously see David Lynch's reflection in that glass in the pilot episode at one point. I think famous is a really generous. I mean, <laughs> famous within Twin Peaks fan, yes. fandom or whatever. Um, you, but you can you, really can. you can very clearly see David Lynch's head. Yeah. Um, and his tall And hair. so it was one of those probably there was a realization of if we try to shoot all of this with these same glass but, things, because they built everything to look like oh, where it was. Yeah. So if you build it with no glass, we will be like, where are the glass? So this was like a segue to be like, let's get rid of these glass dividers mm-hmm. and... It, you once glass. It gave it, but it gave an explanation for why they're all of a sudden not there. Not that they moved their entire filming to California, which I hella did notice that they were doing construction, but I didn't put two and two together. So realistically, if you are a Jessica level watcher, you would have not <laughs> noticed at all and just been like, "Yeah, right. this is what." Where, like, whereas, like the Double R Diner, they make no reference to the fact that it's like three times the size. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, they interviewed Dr. Hayward who is Warren Frost is he related to Mark Frost he is Mark Frost's father huh I didn't know that yeah huh Uh, who had an autopsy conducted on Palmer on Laura Palmer's body that was sort of a sweet sad scene of this is his daughter's best friend and he couldn't do the autopsy himself I I do like these elements and I think I'm appreciating it more this time around of like Identifying like this is, a, and you brought it up last time. It's a small town. This kind of shit doesn't happen. If you're a coroner, you're not the kind of person who's like so jaded. Yeah, this that, is another body. Yeah, this is this is Laura. This isn't you know body mm-hmm. XB four hundred six. Why do you think body that was? 
does. Um, he has the... Man, okay, so Warren Frost is Mark's, Mark Frost's father. The guy who plays Leo is somebody's nephew. Yeah, I don't remember who. I should look that up. But Who do you think I need to be related to to get into the next yeah. season? There's, I mean, there's a... I feel like that happens in um, Star Wars a lot. Like, you have to have been in a Star War or be the, related the to new, a Star War. The, the new ones, for sure, but... Um, there's a few, like, relation things. Like, also, Warren Frost's... Um, Doc Hayward's wife in the show is Mary Jo Deschanel. Yep. Who is, in this case, married to Caleb Deschanel, who's a cinematographer on the show. But probably more known to listeners as Emily Deschanel's parents. And Zoe Deschanel. Oh, Zoe Deschanel. Oh, yeah, Zoe Deschanel. I forgot about her. Yeah. When Mike most and I pe- were first dating, certain most people, people at this table were a little obsessed with Zoe Most people, Deschanel. when they hear Deschanel, think of Emily from Bones. Obviously. Bones is an extraordinarily popular I know, show. I know. And not everybody had Zoe Deschanel's poster on their wall, like a real. I don't have a poster. You did when we started dating. I've never owned a Zoe Deschanel. You owned a Five Hundred Days of Summer poster that you put up on your wall. I had a movie poster on the wall that I got at a private screening for that movie. A private screening. You make it sound like so obsessed with Zoe Deschanel, you had to go to a private screening. That's exactly what. To get this fancy. (laughs) You make it sound like I've just got like this poster of Zoe. Like, hey. Oh Christ! Uh, do you feel? You know what? We should rewatch Five Hundred Days of Summer and see how that holds up in twenty twenty versus when we last watched it in twenty ten. Because I bet it does not hold up that. I think well. it's a well crafted movie still. Ooh, I feel like um, as an angrier feminist now than I was in twenty ten, I would like it less. I, I don't know. Just yeah, like the manic pixie dream girl trope isn't great, and you listen. Maybe we'll do that as a bonus podcast for a friendly atheist Probably or not, something. <laughs> or hear me out. Maybe we could. Or you can. <laughs> I don't think even I could do an hour long analysis of a movie or TV show just by myself, just listening to myself talk. I couldn't do it because I really have a hard time time keeping up conversations when there aren't other people in the mix. Because I am the kind of person that really feeds off the energy of the other person in the room. Mikey, did you see what I did there? <laughs> oh, it's such a treat to be married to me. Um, they learned that Laura had had sex with at least three men the night she died. What Elvis. a transition I just did. Jesus Christ. If I was professional, I would have read this through before doing it and not reading it cold right now. <laughs> if we have any <laughs> listeners, they just checked out. Um. Okay, waitress Shelly Johnson, Madchen Amick. Did I get it? Madchen, I think. Madchen, who is the love of my life. I think she is genuinely the most gorgeous woman who has ever existed in the entire world. She still looks exactly the same. Yeah. Um, she's about to leave for work when her abusive husband, Leo, whose hair is slightly different than it was last time. He, the spit curl thing, the little perm curl. Yeah. Whatever it is, is gone. He just, it's a full ponytail. Yeah. Um, he also does some of the best dead eyes acting I've ever seen. Like his voice does the right thing and his body does the right thing, but his eyes are like, you make it sound like like that's intentional. (laughs) No, I, I, I did not mean it to be. I meant that he like. There's just some some people just don't have any light in their eyes, and it fucking terrifies me. Well, Mike Pence would be an example of somebody this who's is, dead. Dull this is an example of David Lynch being an excellent people director. Okay. 
this is like every episode directed by David Lynch. Some of these people who are not actors or are not strong actors, strong yeah. like are early in their acting career, or they're just young. I mean, uh, James Marshall who plays James Hurley and Dana Ashbrook who plays Bobby Briggs. These guys are young. another one of somebody just young people though. Dana Ashbrook also is somebody who was pretty good looking in 1990, and in 2020 he is like. A dreamboat. Oh, like yeah, he for sure. grew into the silver fox he was born to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he, David Lynch is great at getting those people to perform well. Mm-hmm. So I think. Which like, is wild because, by all accounts, he's a very like odd person to be around. So it's really interesting to me that this sort of like he's a very he's a person. very hands on person, and he physically or emotionally hands on, probably both. Like a Joe Bideny hands on, <laughs> he touches a lot of hair. He but he does a lot of like from what I understand and what I've seen in some behind the scenes clips or uh, interviews or things like that when he is explaining like what he wants out of a person from a scene. He doesn't tell them. He doesn't do line readings for people, things like that. He does a lot of like, now now you're feeling it's dark and you're feeling it, 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 and the sun isn't there. You also and like, see the handwork Mikey's doing But right that's now. it. Yeah. Like it's all, that's all part of it. He's just, and he'll do that like during the take sometimes. Like as people are talking? Yeah. Oh, my and ADD would not treat me well. But it's but it's things that like even if it's even if it's not getting them to in you know internalize the character or something, it's getting them thinking mm-hmm. and they're distracted or something which can look like they've got some life in those eyes or whatever. Sure. Because something is going on in there mm-hmm. instead of just line reading. And so whatever it is he does he lets you explore with the space and he does that very, very well. So some of these Eric DeRay and, you know, um, James Marshall, people like that, like get these excellent performances. Leo and and James Hurley. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm not very good at the actor's name, so I'm going to try to keep up with you and make sure that we're, everybody knows who we're talking about for those who, because hopefully people who have never listened to this before will, or excuse me, have never (laughs) Have never watched the show before. We'll we'll use this as sort of a an inroad. Um, so Shelly Johnson is about to go to work. She's um telling her husband Leo like she's about to head out. She, um, what's her name is about to pick her up. Name Norma. Norma is about to pick her up. Um, and he says, "Did you have laundry?" And she's like, yeah. And he's like, are you sure? And she's like, yeah. And he's like, no, you didn't. And pulls a bag of laundry out of his truck like a real asshole. <laughs> what a dick. Um, and so he gives her a laundry bag and that's in his truck, which I guess ostensibly he changes. And that makes sense as a trucker. He like He's like mm-hmm. a big rig trucker. Um, and so as she goes over to do, which Mikey and I talked at length, to do laundry in their outdoor washing machine, which is something I've never seen before, and is, like, in Congress, not just in the world, but specifically in, um, specifically in the Pacific Northwest. In where hindsight, I just thought about this right now. Um, they just threw it. Half of their house is under construction. So it is also possible, like there's a dresser out there that they just move this stuff outside during the summer. Mm, uh, yeah. Which also, it's not the summer; it's February, February. in 
in the Pacific Northwest, so they're out, she's out there in like her maid uniform, which is not a thing. It's a waitress uniform. Or, I'm sorry, waitress. <laughs> it looks like a maid's uniform, actually. All right, Mikey, you're projecting all of it. No, I'm foreshadowing. There's a maid thing that comes in later. Um, <laughs> I don't remember that. Anyway, no, it's yeah, it's it doesn't really make sense, but it's weird. Yeah, it's all weird. Everything's weird. Um, so as she is. Which, man, I would not have been a good housewife in 1991 because I swear to God, if you threw laundry, I <laughs> threw laundry at me to tell me to do this it. This has nothing to do with 1991. Um, yeah, all women were really subservient in 1991. That's what I remember. I was not uh, six. I was very subservient. Also, it's 1990. Oh, I'm so sorry. So she goes to do his laundry like the good housewife she is, and she finds a bloodstained shirt among Leo's clothes. Mikey, how do we know that there's blood on it? I mean, they show you, but there's a, a full, it's a pretty obvious piece of ADR, additional Wait, can I dialogue. Do can I do, like, they show the thing, and then it, like, cuts away from her face, and you see her, blood? I think that's a good line writing. Mm-hmm. So we know it's blood. And so she um, hides it. Before he notices, which I think is a weird choice. I would have just thrown it in the dish, in the dishwasher, in the washing machine, and pretend well, I didn't see it. I mean, she knows there's just been a murder. Oh, so she's saving it for evidence? I, yeah, like she, mm. this is this could be something that play. This means something. Why yeah. does he have a sh- shirt covered in blood? Like, I think that's a. I yeah, want to figure fair. out what this is. I don't want to be. I don't want to get in trouble for destroying evidence of sure. some kind. You know. Uh, he later, he Leo later realizes that uh, that the shirt has gone missing. When she returns home that night, he questions her about its whereabouts, and then beats her with a bar of soap and a Oof. sock. That was rough stuff. There's there's a couple of things. Yeah, I mean it's she's walking in the door, and you see him loading a sock with a bar of soap, mm-hmm. which is already just a terrifying image. Really menacing. Uh, they, and they also like this scene is terrifying even though they don't ever show you anything no and even though they had the worst song choice like he cranks on some music so presumably people, neighbors can't hear yeah and it's like but it's but it's like this like it's like this like peppy music it's really it's weird it's not that loud but it's not peppy enough to be like a creepy juxtaposition sure it's just weird but what this scene does show is that when she falls back and like half their house is under construction mm-hmm. She falls back onto a wall full of and a pile of plastic. Wrapped in plastic. Which is meant to be potentially a clue or a piece of information um, to help you solve a crime that you know a body was just found wrapped in sure. this same type of sheet plastic. So later, Cooper interviews Hurley about a video of Laura and Donna Hayward. Um, so this is the hilltop kind of picnic thing where I guess the height of 18 year old girl fun in Twin Peaks is just doing the like a step touch dance together and then high fiving I mean I it's wholesome it, it's except that I I always took that and maybe this is me making sense of things or whatever is that it was a sad disconnect that um, Laura was probably fucking high and Donna didn't get that. And she thought that they were just being friends. And this was Ooh. just so... I, I always put this weird... 
Yeah, because you'd have to put a filter. Because I think that the important thing about the Laura Palmer story is that she was very, you know, light and dark sided, right? Mm -hmm. So she had this semi wholesome life where she was the the homecoming queen, best friends with Laura, has this, you know, handsome boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And then she has this whole other side that we we find out a little bit later. And it starts with now. Little by little. We know she's doing cocaine. She's doing something that got her all this money. And and she had sex with three people that night or was raped or Or whatever. whatever. Um, So Cooper interviews Hurley about a video of of Laura and Donna Hayward, um, who's Laura von Boyle. Hurley denied him being present the day it was taken, but Cooper notices a reflection of his motorcycle in the video. I want to be more specific, Wikipedia. It is in her eyeball. Classic reflections. Yeah. Um, Cooper confronts uh, Hurley about the affair he was having with Palmer and about her cocaine habit. He Actually, I was thinking about this yesterday. So, like, obviously this is a soap opera, which is why everybody's, like, having affairs. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody. And it, it made, like, listen, I've watched the OC. I get, like, how all the drama works. But I think it's the, the concept of he said he was seeing Laura for, like, three months while she was still dating Bobby. And I'm just imagining being, like, 17 or 18 years old. And instead of just breaking up with my other boyfriend of, what, six months or whatever and going out with his other boy, it's like, I'm going to carry on a duplicitous affair. And I have all these secrets. Like, it's just a very but, wild thing yeah, to do. But as also, a this is, for, for, for a Laura Palmer character, it was a... You're <laughs> just throwing things all over the place. It's Laura being... The, the light side is in love with James mm-hmm. and the dark side is in love with Bobby who she's doing coke with and shit. Yeah. Like, it's... It show Like, I, I think it's not about like, oh, I didn't want to break up with this person so I could date this person. It was like... It's... She's just... Living two lives. Yeah, she's living multiple lives. But I love... I love James in this scene. I love that... Lo- I, I love... I love it in juxtaposition with the other interviews in that same room in that same conference room or whatever where Bobby who he dismisses is is not guilty right away is accusatory and like ah like up in arms and super defensive yeah yeah Donna who also isn't guilty of anything mm-hmm. um it's very secretive it's very secretive she's making up lies and she's terrible at it she's making terrible lies and then like James is the only like like James is a very sweet sweet person mm. deep down. He's got this like tough guy exterior. I mean he doesn't. For that time. I mean it's the I drive a motorcycle. I've got the leather jacket. Yeah, I got the buzz it's cut. It's very performatively, but like nothing Yeah, he that's does what I that's what I mean. Okay. It's all just a it's this is what he does to protect himself. Is put on this leather jacket mm-hmm. and whatever. But he's a very sweet so like he talk and Cooper talks to him and he says, you know, um, did you take these videos and there's a few beats and he just kind of drops his head and says yes sir and and it's the fact that he's still calling him sir mm-hmm. and stuff like like he's he like it's a good moment of relief where it isn't he's not being an obstructionist for no fucking reason yeah. which is one of the biggest he's pitfalls in a TV show what are you rebelling against what do you exactly. got exactly he's is- just like I and like and then yeah, I, Laura had probably I she was she did scared. Coke, I was trying to get yeah, her to I was, stop. Oh, and then and then something changed. What happened, Bob? And like Cooper perks up. What happened? Mm-hmm. What happened, James? I don't know, mm-hmm. but something scared her. And like that's awesome. Like he like 
it gives you clues, but it isn't like somebody withholding. Mm-hmm. And I love that about that sequence. Yeah, that is interesting because because usually when we see we're only getting like half the story, it's because somebody's being deceptive as opposed to right. I actually don't know. I, I don't know, but I'm this might help, help you. Yeah. yeah. Um, burp, burp, burp. Hurley admits seeing Palmer the night she died, but denies killing her. James' uncle Ed Hurley uh, comes to the sheriff department to pick up pick his nephew up. Ed tells Truman that he was drugged the previous. Ed tells Truman. Ed was drugged the previous night? At the roadhouse when he got oh, the shit that. kicked out of him. That's that's um, why I didn't realize Ed, who's twice the size of Bobby, mm. got his ass beat. So Ed tells Truman that he, Ed, was drugged the previous night at the roadhouse, the town's bar. He suspects the bartender Jacques Renault. Renault? Renault. Renault. It's French. French-Canadian. French great. I was responsible. Cooper takes a telephone call from his colleague Albert Ro- Rosenfeld? Rosenfield. 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 I've seen this show before, right? It's just a lot of names. Um, burp, 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 uh, who's on his way to aid the investigation? Excited to see Albert in this show. I, he's, a, I, he's my all-time favorite Twin Peaks character. Yeah. I love Albert's character. I have thoughts on Albert. He's not I my know. favorite, but I, I like him. Um, who's on his way to aid the investigation? Um, meanwhile, Briggs, Bobby Briggs, and his friend Mike Nelson are in, in a jail cell discussing the money they owe to Leo. Now, I, I only took a couple notes. One of them is, I have seen this, sh- this episode, I must have seen at least four times. Okay. I never remember Mike Nelson as a character, as a human. Like, literally, when we watched the pilot a couple nights ago, I was like, who did I think it was? Kevin Bacon. <laughs> I was he like, was just in the background of a scene, and yeah. And he was like, it was just one of those things that, like, you probably wouldn't notice unless you watched it a few times, but... The direction was like the guy was on, you know, his coach is on the phone. And so somebody was talking to him and you just, they're all, you know, when coaches talk on the phone in front of a bunch of changing football players, like a regular human adult does around teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what people do in the locker room. (laughs) Ew, they're on the phone. You shouldn't be on the phone. That's irresponsible. Why? It's not a video phone. I can hear naked people back there. <laughs> What's wrong with being on the phone? But like, just why is their phone in the locker room? Shouldn't he be in because his office? Because they had phones everywhere back then. Ugh. They didn't have cell phones. Oh, whatever. Boomer. Um, but anyway, the, like clearly the focus is on the guy on the phone and you just see not Kevin Bacon like turning around slowly and like clearly he got it's, direction it's to It's Mike who's in that episode. <laughs> He's a character. <laughs> He left zero impression. I'm genuinely, right now, I cannot pull up his face. Like, I know he has floppy blonde hair. God. What? I, you like, know I get white guy face blindness. I just, you I, know that about me. He didn't. He showed up the next year, but I really, really wish he had showed up at the Twin Peaks Fest that we went to. So I could have been like, you fucking met him. <laughs> like, <laughs> I really, because honestly, I could have told you we met him and you wouldn't have remembered. Oh, my God. I would have been. 12,000% convinced. His name is Gary Hirschberger. That helps. It sure is. I can see it. He does not have an IMDb link, so he hasn't done a lot with his uh, public life. He's in the new season of Twin Peaks. Yeah, they didn't link to that. In. That's a shame. Too bad. Uh, so they owe money to Leo, who is what's her, Shelley's husband. And they were supposed to get that money from Laura. Which, this is the money they found in Laura's safe deposit box. It's a lot of Girl, Girl Scout, Scout cookies. cookies. Exactly. <laughs> so I, I so now I keep, things are starting to 
connect. Right. Like you're you're setting up new things while things are connecting, which right. is, is just beautiful storytelling. Yeah, and I'm sorry, and I'm sorry if I'm being somewhat redundant, but like I know. I have a hard time connecting all the dots. So no, I'm, I, I'm trying yeah. to like narratively make sure everybody is sort of following I, the thread. I've seen this show 10, 15, 20 times. I don't know. Um, I still to this day cannot really follow the mill plot line. Yeah, we should focus in on that and see I've, if we can. I've literally, I've the last like two times ago that I watched it, I watched it with the sole purpose <laughs> of really trying to figure out the the Mill Catherine Martell plot line. Yeah, and it's it just starts getting so meandering, and then they just fizzle it out. Yeah, um, but it's not great. Although I'm yeah. really excited to uh, jump into the beginning of that because I do like this first. The, yeah, this. Uh, so they, the $10,000 they were meant to pay him, Leo, is in a safety deposit box owned by Laura Palmer, which they can now no longer access. This is the one that we saw in the pilot and it, episode. presumably it's in police evidence at this point. Right. Um, they are later released by Cooper, who warns them not to imp- approach James Hurley, because um, they were really being threatening on Hurley. Um, in, in a great way, too. He's oh, when got, they bark he, at him? He's, are you talking about when Cooper releases the... Oh, um... No, I was going to say, no, 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 but it's when, a, when Cooper releases Mike oh, and Bobby and he's got his whistle that he was whittling the day before. Also, that's a thing to mention. This show um, is set up so that every episode is a day. Oh. And that until some, some point in mid season two, they have a three day jump where they put up a title of three days later, but more or less every episode is a day. It's not always like, you know, overnight is the off and then the next day, but like twenty four hour some, period. Sometimes it'll like the next episode will pick up in the middle of that first day, but it'll end on that next day. Every episode is a day more or less. But so the night before, Cooper's whittling that that flute. Um and just I love that delivery of like he lets the guys go, Mike and Bobby are leaving, and then like, oh gentlemen, wait a second. So you better pray. You better pray for the safety and well-being of uh, James Hurley, um, because because if anything happens to him, we're coming. To you. We're coming to you. And then just like <laughs> it like blows on his little like flute like like it's just so, like I the silliness with the the dreary and like the weight of everything yeah, that's I, happening is just fantastic. And I think that's this why show. this. Hey, daddy. I think that's why this show kind of is so unique. And I guess it, it, not even that it's unique anymore, but it sort of launched this new thing of like the darkness and the utter silliness mm-hmm. are just like a real yin and yang in it. And, not, and that's David Lynch to a yeah. T. Like that's, he loves that shit. Although I feel, and maybe we can talk more about like David Lynch's whole body of work, but I feel like everything else I've seen by Lynch is just, creepy am i missing i mean i haven't seen everything he's done but like mahalan drive the stuff in this is is silly like or like this is silly silly something like a like a mahalan drive for example they'll have like there's the really kooky scene with billy ray cyrus where like the guy comes home and his wife is sleeping with billy ray cyrus and he's got the he's dumping all of the jewelry and pink paint and like just silly oh, there's there's all sorts this. of silly things in 
Mulholland Drive. They're not, or like the cowboy is just such a quirky character. Like it's less silly, more quirky. Oh, okay. Most of the rest of his work. Um, the scene fade cuts into a short clip from the VHS tape of Laura Palmer dancing outdoors with a pause on a close-up of her face and the words, help me, can be heard. Bum, bum, bum. And that is, like, I think the first real... Supernatural? Not super... Because the first supernatural is, is Sarah Palmer's vision at the end of the pilot. She's at the very end. The last thing you see is she sits up in a chair and she can see a hand digging the uh, oh, the oh, half heart oh, oh. out of the dirt. Yeah, um, and and obviously she can't see that, but she can see that, mm-hmm. and that's kind of your first element of that. But what the um, uh, what were you just what did you um the the close up of Laura Palmer the, saying help me yes the help me um it's kind of the first dreamlike moment of like is this happening is Dottie hey Dottie Dottie other dogs are allowed to be outside that's okay it's okay thank you for letting us know there's another dog out there she's very brave you keep going I will address Um, this yeah but no it's kind of one of those first moments of where did that audio come from where did I s- did we hear? Are we just thinking that? Is that supernatural? Are, is it? Or is is it, it, it a, did she say that? Is that is? Does that audio exist? Like it's just kind of that first like. Oh, I always assumed it was like her ghost or whatever was crying out from the. See, I just think it's very. It's just very dream logicy. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the dream logic of? Um, That's a. That's a very David Lynch thing is pretty much everything he's done is shot in a not 100% material world. Mm -hmm. It's real world based, but it also follows the rules of dream logic. It's you can all of a sudden be in a brand new location and you don't have to explain how it happened. Mm -hmm. This weird thing just happened. That's totally normal. Mm -hmm. No one reacts to it. Things like that happen a lot. What is one of the cool things about Twin Peaks to me is that it really toes the line, and and it I think throughout the season you like like gradually get pulled into like what is reality, what is supernatural, like are these people just weird, or is this in a different like fucking universe? And there's there's a good three, four, five, six shows happening. In this show. Yeah. There's the there's the silliness that some people like, like, oh, I love the comedy. I love how kooky Agent Cooper is mm-hmm. or Lucy Brennan or some of these, like, silly Which moments. Which is, I would argue, my favorite part of it. Yeah. It's, like, the, the weird quirkiness. This is funny. There's the... Keep going. There's, there's the really dark elements. There's the, like, a murder took place. And some weird, creepy, supernatural shit is going on. And it's it's tearing up this town. There's that. There's this soap opera of everybody's playing somebody else. else. Yeah. yeah, everybody's. There's that element. There's, there's so many different things happening. And different people love different things about it. Or the dream, the dreamscape of it. Of like, oh, the idea of maybe none of this is real. And maybe this is this... 
like you're just supposed to take it scene for scene and Mm -hmm. you know that david lynch viewing approach that you know there's just so many different approaches you can have sure to this show to either like it or dislike it Mm -hmm. and i i love that all of them exist that's kind of what i like about it is Mm -hmm. that there's so many ways to view it sure uh, so next scene is Josie Packard and Pete Martell discuss Packard's trouble with her sister-in-law, Catherine Martell. Um, Truman and Cooper arrive to speak with Packard, who had employed uh, Laura Palmer at... They always refer to her as Palmer in this, and I don't like it because there's three Palmers. Who um, <laughs> employed Leland Palmer as an English tutor. No, Laura Palmer as an English tutor. Uh, Packard admits sensing that Palmer is troubled but cannot help further. Um, Cooper picks up on the fact that Truman is having a relationship with Packard, which is another delightful scene because that I I mean it, it's what's your favorite f- thing about it? Because to me, it is twelve out of ten just Cooper's shit-eating grin when he's like, "How long have you been seeing her?" And he looks at him, he's like, <laughs> Every, like, "Like he's making the face that goes along with <laughs> it's Coop, I, Coop, I love Cooper's genuine." delight when he figures something out Mm, yes and it's it's the same thing throughout the series of he gets a new clue like like when he figured when he's like oh i know bobby like what we just joked about like i know uh bobby and mike are gonna try to attack james if if we let him go so i'm gonna say this and then i'm like (laughs) like (laughs) see you later nerds don't let don't (laughs) anything happen to him like all that stuff and then all of that with Pete Martell, who is just the sweetest character that's ever been, gives him their coffee. Are, do they talk about the fish? They don't, which is shocking. Wait, so one of the most iconic lines. So he, there's a couple of incredibly iconic lines in this scene. Um, Aside from, uh, how do you take? How do you, it brings oh, out yes, the coffee? You're right. You're right. You're how right, do you right. take? How do you take your coffee? Black, Black as midnight, midnight on, on a moonless, moonless night. night. Like Mr. Cooper. Uh, how do you take it? Black as midnight on a moonless night. Pretty black. It's pretty black. Yeah. <laughs> and like, like, like it looks, and it looks like, like uh, Pete Martell just being like, I don't even know what to say to that. Thanks for your help, Pete. That was that incredible. Yeah. Or like, I love uh, Josie talks to Catherine Martell, and they have this whole. She explains this whole thing to her, and then she comes back and is like. What is shenanigans? <laughs> like, <laughs> like I love that. Like that's a great. So, that's a great line. And we'll, we'll dig into and that. And then of course comes up to the biggest moment, which is they sit down. No one sips from the coffee yet. They're talking to Josie a little bit. Josie talks about, um, you know, what it was like. She was worried about Laura. She was acting Wait, can weird. I just pause really quick before we get to your great line. I just want to make sure we're clear about who the players are. Um, so Josie Packard is um, married to the late. Mr. Packard? Andrew Packard. Andrew Packard, who owned the sawmill. Who owned the sawmill. Andrew Packard is Catherine Martell's... Brother. Brother. Josie Packard is his widow, who is from Hong Kong? Yes. From Hong Kong. So English is not her first language, which is why we are... um, Which is why sometimes she speaks perfectly great fluent English, and sometimes she says, on top of the morning. (laughs) Which... I'm sorry, that was so It's great. It's great. Listen... Foreign language speakers not getting idioms but swinging for them anyway is great. Yeah. It's wholesome and wonderful and perfect. Um, so she, so um, Josie is technically in charge of, technically owns a sawmill. However, her, Andrew Packer, her late 
Josie's late husband's sister is um is super bitter. She she thinks bitter. she should have owned it. She was helping Andrew Packard run it for years. She thinks she should have taken control and is angry about it because uh-huh. she sees Josie as this shitty trophy wife. Right, which I kind of feel like there's a, mm, I don't know, I was going to say there's a missed opportunity there to have a plot line of, instead of it's just like this this guy's wife who's running it now, like I kind of wish it was like his shitty son who was left to run it and this older, more established knowledgeable woman is like fuck you like i deserve to be running this just because you're which it's similar i just it's wish the, the same idea a little bit different. i just i think if it were a kid his sister would have understood you're passing it down to your family like oh, sure. like this was this woman who came over who like barely speaks english right who is she i don't know what's going on with yeah. her why did she hasn't like all of that yeah, so um, we are so we're setting up this weird dynamic between so Josie and Catherine dislike each other or are rivals, Correct. and then Pete Martell, who's Catherine Martell's husband. husband, who could not be more different than Catherine Martell. Catherine is a very like vindictive, just but just she's a very like femme. What's a um, violent. Femme fatale. She kind of has that femme fatale vibe for me of like, she's too smart for this. She's playing everybody. She well, was she's going to get hers. She's your absolute stereotypical soap opera villain. Yes. Correct. Like she's, and, and you're she, introduced to her in that scene with, uh, with Ben Horn. Yeah. I want to get to that before okay. you, you talk about it. But and like, but anyway, so all of that. So we're going back so to we're into Cooper the, and Cooper and uh, Truman are sitting on the couch and they're trying to figure out what's going on, and um, Pete Martell runs back in. <laughs> Fellas, you'll never guess. <laughs> and and, and the, what's funny about that, and they do set it up well, because that, like, you if you watch movies, TV a lot, they y'all, scenes open up with a close-up of a task that's being done that seemingly has no bearing on the rest of the scene. Just, it, so that this, this, yeah, exactly, this scene opens with um, Pete Martell skinning a fish. He's cutting yes. fish. He's a fisherman. We've Which established you know that. I hate. Yeah, it's but it's it's a thing he's doing. This is setting the location. Oh, he's in his kitchen skinning a fish. It's the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, Cooper and, fish and for Sherman every meal, come I guess. in. Awesome. But then you come back. So they do that. He serves the coffee. They're talking to Josie. Right. And then Pete busts back in. With the best delivery ever of fellas, you'll never guess, there was a fish in the percolator. Fellas, don't drink that coffee. You'd never guess. There was a fish in the percolator. (laughs) Which is just hilarious. It's hilarious. I don't, like, it doesn't mean anything. It's got no bearing on anything. Anything, and it's just silly. And as he's saying that, Cooper's already got a mouthful of coffee. I think they both do. Maybe and they yes, drink, they drink coffee like I drink wine. But like, I just take a sip and hold it in my mouth. He's for 10 just, and it's just he slowly swallows it and then just keeps like licking his lips it is, and moving his mouth around in this weird way of like, yeah, it tastes like fish. Yeah, that's this what it was. Weird, but also. Okay, he's <laughs> still being polite. Mm-hmm. I'm a guest in and your home. And then they cut to like Pete's washing out the percolator and he like smells it and he's got a goofy face on. Oh, it's great. It's just such a great like 
like like to take it's a great way to take the weight off of mm-hmm. the darkness of levity. this show it's great uh so Catherine, who again is the sister who probably should be running the sawmill calls uh josie packard to tell her that the latter sawmill lost $87,000 the day before. So if you remember the previous episode, Josie and Catherine were at odds because Josie wanted to shut down the, the mill because Laura Palmer had died. What's her face? Specifically because Ronette Pulaski's, Ronette Pulaski's dad, dad worked Yannick the Pulaski, worked at the sawmill. Aren't you related to Yannick? No, Jadek is grandfather. Jadek is grandfather. Yeah, yeah. Um. And so Catherine's really mad about it. So she calls Josie and says, "Your your little your shenanigans at the at the sawmill lost that lost them eighty seven thousand dollars the day before." But what's and- what's great about that is she says that at the beginning, "Your shenanigans cost eighty seven thousand dollars," and it goes on and on and on to berate her for a few minutes. And then when she comes back to the rest, she says, "What is shenanigans?" Suggesting that she has no idea. <laughs> Anything that Catherine just said to her. Like, everything that happened after the word shenanigans, she spent the entire time going, shenanigans? What what is that? What could that mean? Like, seemingly, Josie has no idea what was just said to her. And I love that about that scene. Um, And then it's revealed that Catherine is having an affair with Benjamin Horn, uh, who's Richard Beamer. So, uh, Benjamin Horn is Audrey Horn's father, father who owns the Great Great Northern Hotel. Now, this is one of my favorite little nuggets of this show, and I will tell you why. Uh, because the actress who plays Catherine, whose name is... Piper Laurie. Piper Laurie, strong name, into it, <laughs> is, what, in her 50s? I don't think she's that. 40s, 50s? Um, and they show her in, in, I presume, the Great Northern Hotel Room. And she's just finished sleeping with, with um, Ben Horn. And she's sitting on the bed wrapped in these, like, white sheets that are around her shoulder. And it's so, like... But they're a light blue, which I took to look like plastic. Oh, that's good. I think there's there's a correlation by the way she's... Like, because she's wrapped and doesn't move from that position. I didn't think of that. And I I I always took that as as kind of a, a mirror of the Laura Palmer... Wrapped in plastic. Okay, I didn't see that. Just the thing I liked about it is it's a woman of a certain age, right? Like, she's not in her 20s. And she's not, like, one of those women, like a Helen Mirren, who's in her her 60s or 70s or whatever, and is, like, fucking, like, model body. She's She's a regular-looking... She's sexualized without showing anything. Well, I mean, and she's sexualized in an appropriate way for... An appropriate way. In a way that respects her age well, and doesn't try to make her look younger. And she's sleeping with a man she's who's... She's sexualized, not objectified. That's the difference. Yes. Yes. And the fact that Benjamin Horn... Ben Horn is having an affair with an age... Like, yeah, he's having an affair. Just not morally super great. But with at least somebody who's, like, an appropriate age and they clearly have a mental connection. It's just... Because I feel like the, the easy... Line the easy storyline here is Ben Horn or whomever is like fucking a 22 year old person with no lines and has no consequence. And all he's like, there is something to me that's really lovely that lovely is a really generous term for it, but like really cool that he is like having an affair with an age appropriate person who he clearly is like mentally interested in. And it's not, I, I know, like, I, I guess. 
my standards are so low that I like well, when you show a guy in his fifties having sex with a woman in her fifties. It's everybody in this show who's having an affair, which is a lot of people. Uh-huh. The person they're having an affair with is the right person. Oh. Norma. Oh yeah. Ed is married to Nadine. He's having an affair with Norma. That's a beautiful relationship. Mm-hmm. But him and Nadine, that's 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 tough. Yeah. Laura was with Bobby, but that's fucked up. She should have been with James. Mm-hmm. Like all these people who their affair is them reaching out to what they should be and doing. And Shelly is with but Leo, who's a monster, but, but she's fucking Bobby, and they're both kind of a mess together, which I'm into. But, also. but yeah, but like they're young and sexual, and yeah. it, it, that's like great. so good looking. They definitely yeah. need to have sex. But like everything is, it's like the better really like it's 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 Twin Peaks. It's Everything is duplicitous. Like mm. everything is a dual, fi- like, and it, you have a good side and a bad side. I'm dating. I'm I'm married to this person, but this person's my good person. Yeah, but they're trying their best to be loyal to the commitments they make. I don't think they're trying to be loyal to the commitments. I think they're keeping up status quo. It's about no, but I it's think Big Ed you, is trying to be loyal to Nadine. Are, I think Big Ed is just such a good person. Yeah. That he and his yeah I Ed Ed is an incredible like we could you could do a whole podcast about Big Ed or Big Ed um but Who's, but for is, the most part I think people are putting on a, a facade yeah and then they're they're doing what they're tr- they're out going out and doing what they should be doing with the person they should be doing it with is Ben Horn still married to Audrey's mom who we met in the pilot episode Sylvia yes Sylvia okay so yeah I was just trying to connect the dots all right okay we're coming up on an hour let's uh let's do this um so <clears throat> Catherine's having an affair with uh benjamin horn richard beamer who most of you probably know is tony from from west side story mm-hmm. i assume with whom she's conspiring a hostile takeover for the mill that same day hayward doc hayward so this is um warren frost oh yeah yeah that's warren frost i got it mixed up um Burr, burr, burr. The same day, <laughs> Doc Hayward visits Laura Palmer's mother, Sarah, um, mm-hmm. who's Grace Zabriskie. Zabriskie, that's how I would have pronounced it. A lot of Polish names in this, huh? Yeah. Um, wait, wait till you get to Jacques Renault. Oh, fuck me. I um, see his name written. I want to see you try to say his name. It'll I fun. don't think anybody needs that indignity for me. I think I It'll need to be, be a person that everybody respects and thinks is smart, and I don't think that would really support I mean, you'll that. You'll get his first name. His first name's Walter. That's easy. Oh, you'll fuck. I can knock Walter out of the park <laughs> every time. See? Waltzler. Fuck. Did you see that joke I did, Michael? Nailed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, so Doc Hayward visits uh, Laura Palmer's mother, Sarah, attempting to console her. However, Sarah has a, vi- a vision of a sinister man, Frank Sylvia. Silva. Fuck. In my defense, Silva isn't a real word. Sylvia is. So this is, yeah. So Frank Silva is. I call him Sylvia. We're close. He, you'll find out his name within the, the context of the show later. But he's just a, a guy. A cre- she sees this creepy image of him crouched behind Laura's bed. And it. Deeply terrifying human. It's he's a terrifying man. Also, in context, though. In context, in in reality, the nicest one of the nicest people who's ever existed, according to everybody who's ever been on set. Yeah. Um, but so talk about how he ended up. So at Frank that. Silva, it was a 
I I be, he was he was a crew member on set. I want to say he was a prop guy. I think he was a prop master, something like that. Uh, a little bit. But he was he essentially short. He's a set director set, on Dune so, and Wild at Heart. Keep yeah, going. so probably props uh, slash set decoration and whatnot. Um, he so they needed a villain character for for this to show and in if you'll recall in the pilot episode uh, at the very very end the last shot Sarah has that vision she pops up and she sees the vision of the hand the gloved hand digging the the half heart out of the dirt she sits up on her chair behind her there's several mirrors on the wall so if you go back and watch the pilot episode now watch the last few frames of that you'll see in one of those mirrors is Frank Silva like once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's clear as day. Mm-hmm. And because of that, and because he was just a creepy looking dude. So, um, can I give you what Wikipedia says about it? Sure. Um, so Lynch was upstairs in the Laura Palmer house near Silva as Silva worked. Um, Lynch suddenly realized that Silva might have a place in the show. He asked Silva if he was an actor, and he said he was. Um, Lynch had accidentally. That's not true. Lynch I mean, accidentally yeah. had caught him on camera earlier when his reflection appeared in a mirror. This was discovered after Lynch approached, approached Silva about appearing on the show, yet was filmed before the discussion took place. Thus was born the character of... of I mean, that could be yeah. apocryphal. Who fucking I, knows? I mean, everything I've understood... Like, A, he's he doesn't have any other acting credits. Mm-hmm. So, that... I understand not to be... But everything I've heard... Like, I've read from John Thorne books, magazines, or things like that... It was a mistake, and they crossed their fingers that they could well, make it work. But like they, they didn't have this character cast yet, and since that happened, and since he looks the way he looks, let's just go with it. Because mm-hmm. very Lynch is very very into let's go with it. Rolling with the punches. Yeah, and so he was, and he's wearing that jean jacket, and that's he told him when you show up on set wear what you were wearing Mm -hmm. that's perfect and so that's kind of what happened and that character is going to grow and you'll find out who he is and his importance yeah as we move on and this is i'm finding i'm realizing very difficult to yeah not reveal things which i'm kind of it's kind of fun yeah i I, one of the reasons i feel like i'm taking that ride again a little bit yeah and that's one of the reasons i wanted to do it because i've watched this with you so many times and usually we sit and watch two or three episodes at a time and like I focus as much as I can, but you know, mm-hmm. like I really have trouble focusing up on anything. Well, so this is a really nice way to like make sure I'm understanding it. Well, and you'll like, there's all sorts of, like you can tell from, from the pilot on that they knew episode one to, you know, the last episode of season one, they knew their arc. Everything mm-hmm. was, de- excuse me. Everything was Ooh-hoo. deliberate. Yeah. There's, there's a moment in this episode where um, they mention the uh, James mentions to Ed and Truman like I think we got to get the Bookhouse Boys on this. So they mention who the Bookhouse Boys. Shortly before they mention the Bookhouse Boys, they um, Truman and was it Truman or Hawk? I think Hawk. Uh, uh, was it Hawk? I think so. Either way, the two of the characters do the Bookhouse Boy oh, wait, wait. gesture. Which I don't want to say what it is because oh, okay. you'll see it later. 
But the fact that they do this gesture now, but then don't acknowledge that there is a it gesture until a couple episodes down the road mm-hmm. is great. Mm-hmm. Like, that's great storytelling. It gives that rewatchability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love things like that that happen. So, I, Which is why I know this is the second time I brought it up. I'm shocked you don't like Community more because it is chock full I just, of shit like honestly, that. Honestly, I like... Oh, you don't like I Joel McHale. I can't stand Joel McHale. I just find him so grating. Ugh, a winner. A and it probably winner. doesn't help that he's like all over an 18-year-old girl. And like you mentioned, like I just can't stand Joel McHale. originally all over a 20-something woman. I just, yeah, Joel McHale, I, like, I don't, I just find him great. I don't, I, it's not even that I like, oh, I hate Joel McHale. I don't hate him. Mm-hmm. I just find, I don't, I think he's utterly unfunny. <laughs> and I... And it, and it's it it detracts me from the show. Yeah, I've probably seen Community through woof at least the first three seasons, probably ten times. So, um, I do. You know, someday I want to at least watch a couple of the parody episodes because I think you'd really be into those. And I've seen the first three seasons. Oh, have you? I thought you yeah. gave up in like halfway through the first season. No, no, no. I've oh. seen the like the first uh, probably three seasons, oh. and I just well, it doesn't get any better after that. Yeah, that's what I heard. Um. Uh, Sarah has a vision of a sinister man crouching in the corner of the room and panics. Meanwhile, uh, Lawrence Jacoby, uh, Russ Tamblin, again, West Side Story. Also from West Side Story. Um, plays Riff. Which, it takes like something like 26 episodes to get the two of them in a room together. No kidding. It's, it's really wild. It's pretty fun. <sighs> yeah. Uh, Laura's psychiatrist. Um, he's listening to an audio tape she made for him and sobs as he toys with half of a golden heart necklace, the other half of which was found at the scene of the crime. And it's not only, I mean, I feel like that doesn't, that description doesn't do that justice with that. Well, it's not, for Michael. It's not just a half heart necklace. It's the half heart necklace on the leather string that was buried in the woods. Mm-hmm. So presumably the vision that Sarah Palmer had in the episode prior of a gloved hand digging up that necklace. Was Dr. Jacoby. Is Jacoby? Or somebody dug it up and gave it to Jacoby? Mm-hmm. There's, whatever it is, there's connection there. Yeah. Um, and that is the end of that episode. Um, any kind of overarching thoughts about it? Um, I mean, this is this is terrific. I think it, we're still like, basically. This podcast? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> there, I don't. I think, like top to bottom, I think episode or, or the first every episode of season one is spectacular. Like I think nothing could be changed. Like I think this is incredible. Like especially for its time. Like if if you reshot this all now, like you know, it would have, Gus Van Sant psycho style. Like, it would reshot have a lot it, more people of color. I shot bet. for shot, but like redid all this. All the same beats, I think it would be just as effective as a brand new. Like, if this never existed and you remade this now shot for shot, Mm -hmm. it would be just as effective. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I... I do not have the the deep and unmodern love that you have. But this, like, also because you grew up watching all the shows that this inspired. Yeah, that's true. Like, prior to this, like, this went up uh, in the you know on opposing channels, this went up every week. It went up against Cheers, <laughs> Cheers, Cosby, Cosby Show, yeah, something like maybe Cheers and Cosby Show. Honestly, I mean, it's I think those might have been back to back. Uh, but it was like, it's just yeah, uh, it's 
this was so new. Yes. And so different. And like, oh, yeah, we've seen primetime soap operas in Dallas well, and whatever. But like, no. Is Lynch, and I mean, obviously I don't have like a, a comprehensive understanding of like pop culture of the 90s. But is this sort of um, genre blending unique to Lynch? What? So here's the thing. It's We give a lot of credit to Lynch as, well, he deserves it. Mark Frost is but your boy. Mark, <laughs> but Mark Frost doesn't get the like. Mark Frost did Hill Street Blues. Mm-hmm. Mark like he knew TV. Mm-hmm. Like uh, David Lynch came into this and was a filmmaker. Prior to this, he was you know his hands were grappled with Dune or whatever. But Eraserhead was a purely top uh-huh. to bottom was him. He didn't have studios interrupting. Even Blue Velvet was very, very, this is what I want to make. Was uh, it Elephant Man? Elephant Elephant Man was more... Or did st- he write that? St- he didn't write it. Okay. Um, I don't think. Um, but it's definitely more studio heavy, but, but still had, you know, elements that were his own. But then when he, you know, I don't know. But when he went into TV and wanted to do his own thing... Mark Frost was the guy who could talk to David Lynch and get him to do things that could get past... Like, because Mark Frost was always pushing the envelope with his TV work. David Lynch was credited with the screen part of the screenplay, along with a couple other people For on Elephant, um, Man? Elephant Man. Okay. Um, but... And probably... Uh, that's probably because Lynch probably rewrote pages on set on the day, mm-hmm. which is a thing he does. We'll get to that when we talk about the season two finale. Um, but Sounds exciting. I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to take uh, this journey. But it, like, David Lynch was an abstract art, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Artist? Artisan? Oh, um. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Are you thinking of, uh, entre- not entrepreneur? No. God damn it. What the hell is that word? Oh, people are screaming at Yeah, probably. Um, I keep thinking artisan, and that's bread. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I... I, I almost, I'm not going to cut this. Everybody has to sit with us on this. I hate this. Avant-garde? No. Fuck, okay, well, that's what like, I was thinking of. No, he, like a... Uh, Artur. Artur. Yes! Thank you. Whew. So who cares? <laughs> so David. So David Lynch was is the the filmmaking movie artist auteur who came in with this whatever, and Mark Frost is the TV guy who knows how to make this work for uh-huh. television, and like overcome those hurdles and those roadblocks and things like that. And it, and the the two of them melded together in such a was way. Was this their first the, project together? Uh, as far as I know, yes. Uh-huh. I ask you as if you're like a historian and historian excuse me um okay so that puts us at the end of the first slash second episode we'll probably need to make some executive decisions vis-a-vis episode the, titles what's tough is that we're watching it on disc yes and so this is labeled as episode one with what i'm watching on right. i have a feeling if people are watching along with this they're probably watching it on, on netflix. netflix or hulu or showtime um which, by the way, Netflix, Hulu, and Showtime is where you can find this show right now. Um, They're paying us. 
so much money. Yeah. Also watch Billions. <laughs> and... <laughs> I think Homeland is back. Is Homeland over? No, I don't know. it's definitely over. Okay. But, <laughs> but catch up on all the past seasons of Homeland, guys. Yeah, that that little show really needs our help. Yeah. <laughs> Keep an eye out for Homeland. <laughs> it's going to do something, I think. Okay. Um, cool. Okay, so um, that was the end of episode one, 1. 1.5, I'm going to call it, until we decide on a naming convention. And, uh, Mikey, anything that we want to look forward to? to oh, so episode three is coming up. That is one of i would say your favorite episode yeah i think it's it's my favorite episode it's your favorite episode of like any tv yeah and it's it's the episode where it becomes full on twin peaks it's it's very much a if you're indifferent up until this point watch the next episode and then decide if you don't like it after the next episode you won't like it you won't if you get intrigued by the next episode which is what hooked me don't get me wrong yes if you listen to it and don't like it, continue to download this podcast. Yes. No, I don't know why. We don't have sponsors. Why do I care how many yeah, people Showtime. download it? Showtime oh, yeah. is paying us um, that big John, John Showtime loves this show. His name is Homeland Showtime. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, guys. Um, we uh, So anything to keep an eye on? I guess I want to do that. Keep an eye out for an episode three or keep in mind or I didn't. Uh, tee you up on this no, at all? No, you did not. Um, no. I, what do you mean? I don't oh, know. I don't know. Just anything to look out for? Anything from this episode that's going to pay off? Um, I mean, I think obviously everything. You know, the the Frank Silva character, the mm-hmm. the man in the jean jacket is huge. I'm actually like all the little trinkets of the supernatural and dreamlike and it's... ethereal world that's gonna pay off but it's gonna explode in the next yeah you get you really get your first heavy dose of the you know mind connection of characters and things like that and and it's a really really fascinating cool all right so we will talk to you then do we have a sign off do a sign off bye Thank you for listening to Cooper Duper, a Twin Peaks podcast for regular people, hosted by Michael Greif and me, Jessica Blumke Greif. Our podcast logo is by Foraker Creative. You can follow them at Foraker Creative. Our theme music is by Brad Chactus. You can always email us at cooperduperpod at gmail.com. Please go on iTunes and leave us a positive review and tell a friend. We'll see you next week. <laughs>